Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on the podcast, Elizabeth Bess Clements Abel. Who was Bess Abel? What significant role did she play in Kentucky and Washington, D.C. politics? And during Women's History Month, why should you know more about this Kentucky woman? For the answers, we turn to the University Press of Kentucky's late 2021 publication of Washington's Iron Butterfly, Bess Clements Abel, an oral history from the Kentucky Remembered and Oral History Series. Uh, This uh, particular oral history is by our guests today, Donald Ritchie and Terry Birdwhistle. Donald Ritchie and Terry Birdwhistle draw on Abel's own words and those of others known to her to tell this remarkable story, focusing on her time in the White House. This oral history provides a, a window into Abel's life as well as an insider's view of the nation's capital during the tumultuous 1960s. Donald Ritchie is historian emeritus of the United States Senate. He conducted oral history interviews with former senators and retired members of the Senate staff as part of the Senate Oral History Project and edited the transcripts of Senator Joseph R. McCarthy's investigations. Ritchie has authored a number of books, including Electing FDR, The New Deal Campaign of 1932, and Press Gallery, Congress, and the Washington Correspondence. Terry Birdwhistle is founding director of the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History and served as dean of the University of Kentucky Libraries. He is a former president of the Oral History Association and is co-author of Our Rightful Place, Women at the University of Kentucky, 1880 to 1945. And before we begin our discussion on the Iron Butterfly and why Bess Abel was uh, had that moniker, Terry and and Donald, if you would, um, uh, Terry, first of all, tell us about uh, the work that you've done and the founding of the Nunn Center for Oral History. And uh, Mr. Ritchie, if you would also um, join us, uh, because I understand and uh, Believe it or not, have that book on my uh, shelf at home. Uh, you know a little bit about oral histories uh, yourself. So, um, Terry, first of all, tell me about the the Nun Center and uh, and what 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 is an oral history? Thank you, Bill, for having us today, and uh, it's it's good to have a chance to talk with you not only about oral history but about Bess uh, uh, Clements Abel. Um, oral history, uh, in terms of the Oral History Center at the University of Kentucky began in 1973, and it really began as a way to supplement the wonderful uh, documentary sources that we have in the Special Collections Research Center there. And so, interestingly enough, one of the early projects we did in the 1970s was an oral history of Earl Clements. And so we interviewed Earl Clements, and we interviewed uh, the people who served with him in his office, and the people that he served with in the governor's office and in Congress, uh, and uh, it became a really important uh, project for us. Uh, and today's uh, Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History is directed by 
Dr. Doug Boyd, who has done a phenomenal job in uh, getting the oral histories accessible to people around the world through a system that he and his colleagues at UK Libraries actually invented uh, called OWNS, and it allows digital access uh, to the interviews. And now we have thousands and thousands and thousands of interviews, and I uh, really encourage people to go to our Nun Center website and uh, check it out because it, it's amazing the number of uh, projects and the incredible diversity of stories. And uh, I think that oral history and what we're doing at the Nun Center and what Don and I have done with this book, you know, is really in line with what you do at the Kentucky Humanities in terms of the stories about Kentucky and Kentuckians. And so it's a, it's a very appropriate, you know, that we're sharing this conversation with you today. But, uh, you know, Don wrote the book on oral history, so let him, I'm gonna let him tell you about oral history. Mr. Ritchie, um, is an oral history basically uh, an interview or a conversation that's recorded? Yes, there are interviews and there are oral histories. The real difference between a regular interview and an oral history is an oral history is recorded, it's usually transcribed, and then it's preserved in an archives where it can be used by other people. And I stumbled into oral history just about the time that the Nunn Center was being founded. I was a graduate student at the University of Maryland. I was writing a doctoral dissertation. And one day at the Library of Congress, I pulled out 50 pages of an oral history that the man I was writing about had done just before he died. It was marked page 650 to 700. And I asked, well, where are the first 650 pages? And they had no idea when he died, that's all he had. Uh, so I tracked it down. Columbia University had done an interview with him in 1964. Uh, and I was able to use that. And that for the first time, I suddenly realized that essentially historical figures can talk to us from beyond the grave, essentially. Uh, and that I never had a chance to meet this man, but he was telling me about his life from his childhood on through in the first person. He only talked about the good things in his life. He didn't talk about some of the more difficult things, including the income tax case that sent him to jail at the end of his life. Uh, so I went out and started to interview his widow and his children. And I interviewed uh, his, the lawyers who prosecuted him and who defended him. I tried to find everybody I could. And uh, that produced my first book, but it also got me a job with the US Senate because when I was looking for a job, they were looking for somebody who could do an oral history program. And I spent about 40 years working for the Senate, largely often doing oral history interviews. Tell me about the process of taking an oral history, uh, editing it for a book. Um, and I imagine we can use the book that you've collaborated on about Bess Abel, but Others, and maybe that first one, uh, Mr. Ritchie, that you uh, produced, uh, wrote, edited, uh, what is that process of taking it from an oral history or what you've transcribed to the publication? Well, Studs Terkel, one of the great oral historians, used to say that the process was mining for gold. In other words, you did a lot of interviewing and then you were looking for the really telling portions that you could then extract and put into the book. When I was writing about my dissertation with a man named James Landis, I interspersed the whole book with his interviews. Uh, but uh, the book about Bess Abel is very different. It is an oral history book. Uh, we got to know Bess. 
she was a wonderful storyteller, very entertaining. Uh, and we thought that uh, to write a book about her, we should let her speak for herself. And it turned out that she had been interviewed by the Lyndon Johnson Library, uh, by the University of Kentucky, by all sorts of different institutions, the White House Historical Association. So we took all of these interviews that we could find and we sort of pulled them together in a chronological form. But then we went and we looked for other people who talked about her. So Lady Bird Johnson, who best worked for, and the Johnson daughters and other people, we interspersed those interviews. So essentially it's a conversation about, about Bess Abel, largely Bess talking about herself, but then her friends and colleagues adding a flavor about what she was really like. What's great about oral history is you can use it in, in very different ways. You know, as Don said, you can take the actual words and, and let the people tell their own story, or you can use the oral histories as uh, the same way you use other sources, you know, to fill in uh, things you don't know. Uh, I told, I used to tell people that when I interviewed the former UK president over Singletary, uh, most people thought he didn't want to do interviews or do oral histories. And I said, well, he was very happy to do these oral histories because he didn't want the Lexington Herald leader to get the last word. <laughs> well, uh, Terry, that's uh, part of the question that I had. How, how much, and let's just take uh, this uh, Iron Butterfly, uh, Bess Abel's story, how much is narrative? How much do you end up writing and how much are uh, is uh, her words? In this particular uh, publication, it's mostly the words of the people who were interviewed. As Don said, of Bess Abel, Tyler Abel, her children, her high school friends, uh, the people she worked with at the White House, the Johnson family. And what Don and I did was to offer enough uh, narrative to put it in context where it needed to be placed in context. You know, you just, it's very hard just to string together a bunch of, of interviews and make it coherent. And so our job was not only to pull together these, these uh, different interviews, but then to put them in a format that would make it readable and make it uh, make sense to people as they went through it. And I might point out, you know, this is published by the University Press of Kentucky, uh, which does a fantastic job. And we actually have uh, Jim Plotter and uh, Doug Boyd and I actually uh, edit a series called Kentucky Remembered. And I would suggest people look at that. This book is actually in that series. And it is a book using oral histories in, in different ways like that. And uh, uh, Linda Vitti's uh, two-volume work on conversations with Kentucky writers is a great example where she actually presents the story of these Kentucky writers in their own words. Well, we'll return to that at the end of our podcast and, and talk maybe just a little bit more about that. But let's... Um... Let's begin to tell our listeners about Bess Abel uh, and whoever wants to go first. Who was Bess Abel? I'll, I'll start off. Bess Abel is a, a Kentuckian who more people should know about. Uh, she was born in 1933. And the interesting thing about her birth bill is that, you know, she is a great Kentuckian. But on the day of her birth, they found out the birth was going to be breached. And so... Earl Clements uh, and, uh, and, and Bez's Bess, mother had to, to uh, uh, race over to Evansville, Indiana, where there was a doctor who could perform a breech birth. And so Bess Abel was actually born in Evansville, Indiana. 
Well, Earl Clements, who was a great Kentuckian in his own right, he didn't think that was very good. So as soon as possible, he raced back to Morganfield, where Bess was and the Clements were from, went into the county clerk's office and said, I need a birth certificate. My daughter was just born and he got a Kentucky birth certificate. <laughs> Only in later years, uh, and it, it involved the FBI, did uh, the problem of having two birth certificates uh, come to the surface. Terry, uh, tell our listeners uh, uh, just a little bit about Earl Clements. Earl Clements uh, uh, grew up in Union County. His father was a sheriff down there and a, a leader in the community, farmers um, uh, going back for a few generations. Uh, Earl Clements came to the University of Kentucky he was uh, uh, a star center on the UK football team. But like a lot of young men at, during his generation, he left college because of World War I, entered the service and uh, came back to UK briefly, but they didn't graduate. He went back to Union County. Uh, his father died and he took over the, uh, some of his responsibilities and he became county clerk. He was county sheriff. And he was county judge. And that's where he really learned the art of politics. And uh, then he went to the Kentucky legislature. Uh, then he went to Congress. Then he became governor. And then he became one of the most powerful United States senators in the Senate at that time. And a great friend of, of Lyndon Johnson's. And, uh, you know, people who study Kentucky politics, and I know you do, Bill, uh, many consider him probably, uh, in, uh, or just consider him uh, the most progressive governor of Kentucky in the 20th century by far. Donald Ritchie, what did uh, Bess Abel learn from her father uh, as she was growing up? What sort of um, upbringing did she have in, uh, in uh, Western Kentucky uh, uh, modeling herself after him? Right. Well, she was a small town girl and she tells the story about growing up in Morganfield as a lovely little place with great friends and all the rest. Uh, and then all of a sudden her father gets elected and takes them to the state capitol and takes them to Washington, D.C. Uh, and so she's sort of pulled out of her, her roots and uh, transplanted into this political world. And she was just a little girl at the time. She tells a wonderful story about the day that her father was inaugurated as governor. Uh, and she thought it, that she was the center of the universe. She had all new clothes. She got to dance for hours at the reception. And, and uh, she was just beside herself. And that evening, she was so excited that her father called her into his study. And he said, look at that globe over there. Can you find Canada on that globe? And she said, oh, yes, Canada's huge. It's right over there. And then can you find the United States? Well, yes, it's right underneath it. He said, and then can you find Kentucky? And she said, well, Kentucky isn't really on the globe. It's a little too small, but I think it's about here. And he says, right, that's why it's, a, it's not the center of the universe. It's a small spot on the globe. And he said, and you didn't have anything to do with my getting elected governor of the States. <laughs> so in other words, don't think that you're the center here. It was a humbling experience. And she loved to tell that story because it did put things into perspective for her about uh, who she was and where she fit in. But uh, she eventually came to Washington, D.C. with her father. Uh, and at one point, she was the secretary to her father when he was the head of the Democratic Campaign Committee uh, in the 1950s. 
And that led eventually to her connection with uh, Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson, which shaped the rest of her life. How did they um, meet? What was their uh, first, um, I guess, meeting um, professionally or, or, or socially? I mean, uh, the Johnsons and, uh, and Bess uh, it was because uh, essentially that Bess was growing up uh, and her mother was a friend of Lady Bird Johnson's because their husbands served together in the Senate. Lyndon Johnson was majority leader and Earl Clements was the whip. And they got to be very close allies in the Senate. Uh, and so uh, Bess would go with her mother and Lady Bird and, uh, and Linda and Lucy to the beach, for instance. And uh, they, they were just sort of neighbors and friends, uh, people who had, had dinner together and things. But then in 1950, I guess it was 55, that um, uh, Bess uh, met Tyler Abel who was a, uh, she met him at the Kentucky Derby, by the way, originally. Uh, she, uh, uh, she, uh, Tyler Abel was the stepson of Drew Pearson, the, the, the famous Washington columnist. Uh, and the two of them had a great romance and on New Year's Eve, they eloped. Uh, and uh, Earl Clements was absolutely furious that his daughter had done this. Uh, you know, of course he planned a big wedding for her when she was going to get married. And here she is driving off and getting a uh, eloping. And he got really mad at her when she called him on the phone. But when she when the car pulled up in front of their apartment, uh, he was standing out on the street and he embraced her and he apologized uh, and he calmed down quite a bit about this. But because they hadn't had a formal wedding, uh, Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson threw a reception for them. Uh, and Lyndon Johnson actually adjourned the U.S. Senate that afternoon. So all of the senators and all of their spouses and everybody else who was anybody in Washington, D.C., came to this reception for this young couple. So you can tell right away that Bess Abel was right in the thick of things politically in Washington, D.C. Carrie, did she ever think about uh, running for office uh, when before she was married or while she was in Washington working for her father? Uh, no, I, I, that's that's part of the story of Bess Abel and her generation, you know, and it's a story about what was possible for women at the time. And I think people who knew Bess, uh, looking back on her life, uh, most would agree that if she had been born later, she would have she would have run for office herself. It's I think it's important to point out Bess was an only child, and so you know she got all of her father's attention, she got all of her mother's attention. And she was the center of that family. And there are a couple of stories that say a lot about how, what Bess would become. Uh, Bill, you know, uh, Tom Ray and Happy Chandler had a hard fought campaign for governor in 1935 in the primary. And, uh, and Earl Clements was the campaign manager for Tom Ray. Well, one day Bess was at Sunday school and uh, when she was very young, very young, and the Sunday school teacher was asking the children about God. And she asked Bess Clements, she said, Bess, what did God make? And Bess very, uh, very stood up and said, God made the sun. Well, Bess, what else did God make? Well, God made the moon. Anything else that God made? God made Tom Ray. <laughs> and so the Sunday school teacher sent a note home with Bess to the parents saying, I think Bess should spend more time on church and less time on politics. <laughs> the, the other thing, Bill, is that uh, in that small town of Morganfield, uh, 
Bess's mother and the other mothers of her friends, they had lots of little parties. You know, they had bridge parties and tea parties and all types of things. And as Bess was growing up, uh, she took a, a, an active role in preparing for those little parties by doing the table settings and doing the place cards and doing all that. So uh, who would have thought that she'd become the social secretary of the White House? But she was learning the trade at a very early age in Morganfield, Kentucky. When did, um, uh, back to when she met the Johnsons and, and began to uh, uh, not only be, I guess, looked at as a friend of the family, but uh, as an employee, when did that occur? That started at the 1960 election when Lyndon Johnson was running the vice president on the ticket headed by John Kennedy. And as best that likes to say, or like to say, she uh, got into that because her husband had lied to her. He told her that he was not going to get into politics like his father and her father, but he was going to devote himself to his job and to his family and he'd hang around. But he went off as an advanced man for Lyndon Johnson during the campaign. And Bess was home with two little children. And she wanted some adult company. So she went down to the Democratic headquarters and she volunteered. And they put her in the speechwriting office for Lyndon Johnson as a secretary to type. And she said it was a waste of her time because Lyndon Johnson only had one speech and he gave it over and over and over and over again during the campaign. So to find something to do, she looked around and she realized that people were writing letters to Lady Bird Johnson as saying things like, oh, could you send me a recipe or how do you raise your daughters or things like that, that all candidates and their spouses get. And so uh, Bess began answering Lady Bird Johnson's mail, signing her name and all the rest. Uh, because she knew Mrs. Johnson. And so when Mrs. Johnson suddenly realized that she was the, the wife of the vice president after the election, she contacted Bess and said, would you work for me as my secretary? And it was a part-time job. She worked out of the Johnson's home. She helped organize things. But right away, of course, if you worked anywhere near Lyndon Johnson, you were on call 24-7. So, you know, she would get calls in the middle of the night that the water in the swimming pool was too hot, you know, or there was there was some problem with this or some problem with that. And she began to be a Mrs. Fix-It for, uh, for the Johnsons. And she helped or, uh, plan their dinners and uh, their entertainments and things like that. But it was a relatively low scale because he was the vice president, not the president at that time. Before Bess Abel, um, I'm sure that, um, and I'm just trying to recall, uh, presidential or vice presidential, um, were social secretaries uh, in as prominent a position as we want to believe that Bess Abel was in? No, uh, really, the first social secretary at the White House was under Theodore Roosevelt. And really, all that they did was to handle invitations and the uh, people who accepted the invitations. Uh, it wasn't until Mrs. Kennedy that a, she appointed a social secretary who really had a much more active role in this. Uh, it had grown over the years, but essentially the first lady handled most of the social business that was going on in the White House and uh, was in charge of all of that. But now you, uh, Mrs. Kennedy had a, an aide who was re specifically responsible for that, took on a lot of the burden. And then when, uh, when Bess took over the job, Mrs. Johnson said, I've been running a house all my life. I don't want to run a house now. I, I want to be involved in issues that are going on. 
I want to have a staff that run things for me. So uh, Mrs. Johnson had two aides that she trusted completely. One was Liz Carpenter, who was her press secretary, who essentially was in charge of the public, Mrs. Johnson. And the other was Bess Abel, who was the social secretary, who was in charge of everything in the White House uh, that usually first ladies uh, had to worry about in the past. And so Mrs. Johnson didn't really have to worry. She was consulted by them constantly and she made some decisions, but she didn't have the burden of that. And she could go off and, and do her projects like for instance, the beautification project that she was well known for. Was, uh, was Bess comfortable in that position of being sort of the, the private uh, secretary and, and not, uh, uh, not out uh, speaking for uh, the first lady? Well, I think she was. Uh, it, it really played to, to her strengths. And, you know, you, you asked, would, would Bess have run for office, you know, uh, before? Well, she did get from her father great political instincts. And I think what made her different as a social secretary was that she brought those political skills to that position. And so when she would make decisions about uh, state dinners and how they were going to be handled and who sat with whom and, had, and how that would go and 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 later, uh, we'll tell you a story about her getting very involved in the campaign, a presidential campaign itself. But she brought a, a keen understanding uh, of politics uh, to that job. And you know, I don't think that people, people after they worked with Bess and got to know her, realized how really smart she was. She was very, very smart. Um, and she used those skills uh, very adeptly. I'm talking with uh, Donald Ritchie and Terry Birdwhistle. Uh, they are the uh, editors of the University Press of Kentucky's Washington's Iron Butterfly, Best Clements Abel and Oral History, which came out just a few months ago, but is certainly available on many platforms uh, that you are aware of and also from the University uh, Press of Kentucky. We're talking about this this Kentuckian, uh, this, uh, the, the daughter of Earl Clements, who uh, I certainly uh, firmly believe that more people in Kentucky should know uh, of her and her family and her upbringing and uh, the life she led uh, being uh, Lady Bird Johnson's social secretary, but also being intimately involved in the Washington scene at that time um, and afterwards. Um, did she ever speak to you about uh, confidentiality and um what what she might have heard or witnessed that uh, she knew at that time, and the times have changed, uh, but uh, certainly some of those uh, uh, areas that were um, a, a little bit private, uh, maybe to to reveal at, at the moment. You know, uh, Bess gave many interviews, and some of the earliest ones were in 1969, just at the end of the Johnson administration. Uh, and uh, those are available at the Lyndon Johnson Library. And she is very circumspect in those interviews. They're very formal interviews. They're, they're forthcoming. She tells a lot, but there's a lot that she doesn't tell. But as time goes on, and this is true of all oral histories, as time goes on, the events move further into the past and you can become more candid. And of course, that's what oral historians are trying to get, is to get people to open up and tell those stories. And so she was much more willing in later years to talk about the, the Johnsons and the situations in the White House, the things that worked and the things that didn't work, the uninvited guests who came to 
to state dinners and all, so all the things that make the book very lively. Uh, the, a lot of that are stories that she told later in, in her career. And she got also funnier as she told these stories. If, if you ever watch the recordings, everybody in the, in the room when she's giving a talk breaks into laughter many times because uh, she had just a wonderful wit and a great sense of humor. And she appreciated the peculiarities of working in Washington, D.C. In particular, she was the social secretary trying to bring tranquility in a White House that was surrounded by anti-war protesters, including her own mother-in-law, who was outside protesting against the war. Uh, and so she was trying to figure out how do you uh, you know, not draw attention to all of that. How do you get people to relax when they come to the White House? How do you get the president to relax and not to worry about these things along the way? One of her little tricks was that uh, she had she hired the entertainers to come uh, to the White House special events and the, especially the state dinners. But she would read the Sunday New York Times, where there'd be these long petitions that uh, lots of entertainers would sign petitions against the war in Vietnam. And so Bess would just clip that out and she'd circle those names. And those were not going to be the people she was going to invite to the White House because she didn't want them to use that, the White House, as a platform for their political views. Uh, over time, that got to be harder and harder because in the beginning, she had lots of entertainers like Peter, Paul and Mary and others who were, were happy to come to entertain for the Johnsons. As the war went on, those entertainers were much less likely to show up. Uh, to feel comfortable doing that, you should discover that the one set of entertainers who never signed petitions were ballet dancers. She decided that it was because they were too busy practicing and it was too strenuous a profession that, that to get involved in politics on the side. So increasingly during the Johnson administration, they had ballet performances at the end of a state dinner and other events. And people were saying, you know, I never knew that Lyndon Johnson <laughs> enjoyed the ballet so much. But that was bad work at the time. I can't um, uh, quite imagine uh, Lyndon Johnson staying awake during all of those. Uh, um, but he had many talents, as we know. So um, we're going to take a pause here, uh, gentlemen. And uh, when we come back... Uh, Terry, you've got a story or two I'm sure you'd like to, to tell us about. And uh, then we'll, uh, uh, Donald, I'd like for you to, to talk to us a little bit about your 40 years um, um, in the, the U.S. Senate uh, as almost a member, uh, but certainly as an observer of that. We'll be back uh, right after this word from our wonderful underwriters at Spalding University. As a Kentucky humanities lover, You've heard of Spalding University's nationally distinguished MFA in creative writing. Now at the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing, we've added two innovative programs in professional writing. Your career goals take center stage as you work one-on-one -on -one with a faculty mentor to gain the writing skills employer's prize. Learn more about our low residency master's and certificate in professional writing at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Terry, what's your, uh, your favorite story um, that you can tell us about Bess um, uh, while she was in the White House and um, maybe some of her duties that we haven't already talked about, um, uh, something, something funny maybe that uh, she talked about later? Well, I think that... Uh... One of the important things to remember about Bess and 
this job in the White House, which was all consuming, was that she was a working mother. And she had two young sons that uh, she and Tyler uh, were, were raising. Uh, and uh, they contributed interviews to the book and they're very insightful about their mother. You know, the, uh, one of the sons is actually named Lyndon uh, for Lyndon Johnson. Uh, but uh, Lyndon told the story about when, when they went to the White House and all of a sudden this phone showed up at their home with two different lines on it. You know, and most phones at home didn't have one, you just pick it up. And this one had two lines. And when you push one button and picked it up, the person at the other end said, White House, how can I help you? And he thought that was, he thought that was just terrific. He, he remembered his mother being so busy, but even so she would, during a state dinner, she would slip out and go into another room and call the two boys as it was getting time for them to go to bed. And she would read to them from their favorite books in the middle of a state dinner. And so, you know, when we think about what women accomplish, you know, they, they, you know, it's kind of like they not only have to dance well, they have to dance backwards in heels. I mean, this is, this is something that uh, always has to be remembered when looking at women of her generation. Also, uh, she had to keep up with where these boys were. And so Lyndon, uh, you know, he was riding the school bus to, to school and uh, Lyndon was a little mischievous. Let's just leave it at that. And, and he got in trouble. And so they said he couldn't ride the bus for a while. And so Lyndon said, well, this was terrific because they sent the White House limo and driver to pick me up at school. And he took me over to the White House and I went in and, you know, this was where all the security said I had the run of the place. I'd go down and talk to the limo drivers. I'd hang out where my mother was working and, you know, be a bother there. And he said it was just, uh, it was just absolutely terrific. The other thing about Bess uh, as a professional woman was the number of, of women who contributed to the book uh, through interviews talk about what a mentor she was. You know, she, she always reached back and pulled the others after her, you know, and, there's a story in there, one of the one of the young women who came to work at the White House and she realized she didn't know, you know, she didn't know where the cafeteria was. She didn't know how to do anything. And uh, she she asked Bess, she said, Bess, what should I do? And she said, just don't say anything for a week and it'll all become clear to you. You'll be able <laughs> to do this. And was she close uh, and, and were you able to or at least the uh, the other interviews with the uh, Johnson uh, daughters, were, were they uh, forthcoming with with stories of Bess? Oh, they were. And they they really liked Bess. You know, Bess was older than them. So they looked up to her and and when uh, in interviews with the Lady Bird Johnson, you know, she talked about um, them all going to the beach together. And Lady Bird talked about how how uh, uh, Bess's mother, Sarah, was so good to her daughters when when Lady Bird might be uh, out of town or not able to do something. Or one of her daughters got sick. Sarah would take care of them. So I think it's important to remember that the Clements and the Johnsons, that was more than a partnership in the Senate. That was more than you know, just a, a working relationship. They were close. For, I mean, the Johnsons came over to their house for Sunday dinner most every week. And, uh, and so, you know, that, and the other thing about Bess was that, you know, some people might say, well, of course she got a job with the Johnsons. You know, her dad was great friends with them. 
But not only did she get an entry-level job, but she proved that she could be so much more. And she earned she earned every job she got moving on up. So uh, I think those are uh, some some very important things to remember. I was going to add here that uh, they, both of those daughters got married in the White House. Uh, that was the first wedding in the White House since uh, Theodore Roosevelt's daughter Alice was married in the White House. And Bess was in charge of both of those weddings, which were huge productions. One, uh, Lucy was married at the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, uh, and uh, Linda was married in the White House itself. Uh, these are things that involved uh, early walkie-talkies and getting people to move from section to section. And the, one of the stories that uh, developed was that uh, Lucy picked a dress and a dressmaker that was not a union shop. Uh, and the Ladies' Garment Workers Union protested vigorously about this. And Lyndon Johnson got on the phone to, to Bess and protested vigorously because he depended on their support. And so Bess had another dress made at a union shop. But of course, it wasn't the dress that Lucy wanted. And then Bess took a scissor and cut the label, the union label, out of the back of the union dress and sewed it into the non-union dress. She said that was something borrowed for the wedding at that time. But that was how she got around uh, the, a lot of the circumstances to, to uh, take care of things. Lyndon Johnson was not an easy person to work for. At one point when lots of things were going wrong with Lucy's wedding, uh, he got on the phone. He said, the, uh, the, the only thing, the only disaster that hasn't happened is something that you haven't thought of yet. Uh, but <laughs> was, that wasn't really fair. She was the fix-it person. And in the end, Lyndon Johnson did say to her, I'm glad you're a can-do girl. That's, that was his great uh, the defense of her, that she could do and she could come through on situations. Well, well Terry, uh, we've we've talked here for a few minutes, and I, I don't think we've – I've mentioned Iron Butterfly, but um, where, where did she get that name? I'll let Don tell you that story. Well, the, the Secret Service had what they call handles for people at the White House, uh, and – uh, Iron Butterfly, of course, the Iron Butterfly, uh, the, the band was becoming famous in the 60s. Uh, and it seemed to the Secret Service that that was a perfect description of Bess, that she was tough. She was a strong person, but she was also very soft. She had a Southern charm uh, and she had a, a Southern way of, of talking to people that calmed them down and got things uh, working out and she could bring peace and order. But she was still at the same time very firm about how things were going to go. Things were done the way she wanted them to be done. Uh, and so she was a major domo at the White House. She was the person pulling all the, the strings to make sure that these big events and sometimes small events would come out with, without a hitch along the way. There's a story in the book about, the, you know, because the, the Johnsons came into the White House in a very unusual way. They didn't have an inauguration and a great triumph. They came under terrible tragedy. Bess was actually at the Johnson's Ranch in Texas waiting for the Kennedys to come from Dallas that for the spend that weekend. She suddenly rushed back to Washington, D.C., and Mrs. Johnson said she needed help and asked her to be her social secretary. But for the first month of the Johnson administration, the White House was covered with black crepe. Everything was in mourning. mourning. Uh, Mrs. Johnson only wore black dresses, for instance. On December 23rd, 1963, the official mourning period ended. And uh, Lyndon Johnson invited the entire Congress to reception at the White House that night and their spouses and told Bess that morning that they were gonna have a thousand people at the White House that afternoon. So she organized taking down the black crepe 
hanging up the uh, Christmas decorations, changing Mrs. Johnson from her black dresses into a Christmas red dress for the occasion, and getting on the phone and calling everybody to pitch in for food and, and other things that were going to happen. And the White House usher said that when the end of that day, Bess came to see him and she said, everybody I called, in, either in the government or in private operations, everybody I asked to do something did it. And they did it with, you know, with gusto. She said, I never knew how much power there was in the position of social secretary. And she said, I intend to use it. Terry, um, tell us uh, just a little bit more about um, the Oral History uh, Center. Uh, uh, Kentucky remembered the series and, and what people can find and how they can uh, find uh, that, um, uh, those interviews and, and some, of course, now books. Uh, how, how valuable is that uh, and should be to Kentuckians? Well, or to the world, for that matter, not just to Kentuckians. Well, it, it, is a, it is an international collection. You know, we have a, a great collection of interviews from a, uh, a historian uh, from uh, Italy uh, who's in there. And he was actually studying Appalachia. One of the things we did at the Nunn Center early on, even though we were out collecting interviews, doing interviews ourselves, uh, I guess because many of us had archival backgrounds, we knew that the Nunn Center needed to provide an archive for all of these interviews that were increasingly being done by independent researchers and independent scholars. And so uh, probably 75% of our collection comes from interviews being done by people who were working on their own research, who were working on books and articles, documentaries, and those are extremely valuable. And, you know, Don was talking about what a oral history is. And what I, when I taught oral history classes, I would always say, one way to think about oral history is it's not journalism. You're not doing this for tomorrow's paper or for the next newscast. You're doing this for 50 years from now. And there's still oral historians today who really want, who hate it. You know, I have a lot of restricted interviews. And they hate that I restrict interviews because they want to get them out now. But I think you have to think long term when you're looking at, at oral histories. And so when you think about the growth of these oral history programs around the country and around the world, uh, Don and his wife, Anne, who uh, actually was a former colleague of mine at UK and helped build the oral history collection there, and Campbell Ritchie, uh, uh, they are very involved in the international oral history movement. Uh, but uh, as I said earlier, uh, we're very proud of what uh, the Nunn Center has become. We're very thankful of the support we've gotten from the state of Kentucky and from the University of Kentucky. Um, and uh, we, we think it's going to be a valuable resource well for years, years to come. And it's been my privilege since 1970, since the beginning, to be involved with it. Donald Ritchie, uh, you told us at the beginning of the uh, podcast today that uh, you were uh, affiliated with the United States Senate for 40 years. Um, it, that could be just like uh, a podcast with Terry on just the Oral History Center. Uh, that could, with you, be a, a podcast all of its own, and we may uh, do that. Uh, if you're willing. Uh, but just give us an idea of what it was uh, like to be uh, so involved in, in the history uh, of this country for the time that you were there. Um, that, that's the front row. Um, and we can all recall in our 
in our lives, uh, momentous moments uh, that that you must have been close by or at least monitoring um, what was going on and uh, what was being said. And uh, just give us a, a, a flavor of what that was like. Well, it was a terrific gift for me as a young political historian, fresh out of graduate school, to get hired by the Senate Historical Office, which had just been created. Senator Mike Mansfield and Senator Hugh Scott, the Democratic and Republican leader, had created it in 1975, and I went to work there in 1976. And to give you some perspective on that, I like to tell people that uh, I, Joe Biden and I were both in our 30s when I went to work there at the time. We both had dark hair at that time as well. So, uh, you know, for me, to, suddenly to be surrounded by people like Mike Mansfield, Hubert Humphrey, uh, and uh, Mark Hatfield, and Howard Baker, and they were just fascinating people. And uh, I, I can't say that we were in the thick of things. We were always observers uh, on the periphery, but they would often call us when they were seeking information. The Senate is a 200-year-old institution, and it operates largely on its precedents. So quite often when something big was about to happen, they immediately wanted to know, well, how did we deal with this the last time? Uh, and that was true, for instance, when the Senate uh, when the House impeached Bill Clinton back in 1998, and we were going to have a trial in 1999. We had lots of calls from the leadership and from the senators, and especially from the press. I used to take calls, hundreds of calls from the press. And I still remember one breathless young reporter who called and said, quick, who was Andrew Johnson and why was he impeached? <laughs> we, we, were, we were trying to fill in information on things like that. The other question I got, that I, the most memorable question I got over the years was someone who was trying to find the campus of the Electoral College. Uh, so, <laughs> but most of the other things were, were much more relevant to what was happening at the time. And because uh, I had to learn this, uh, it, nothing in graduate school really prepared me for that quite of a job. I learned political history in general, but this was a very different situation. And so very early on, I began doing oral histories with people who had worked for the institution since the 1930s. Uh, the earliest person was a, someone who had been a page in 1910, uh, and I interviewed him in the 1970s. Uh, there, there, uh, lots of these folks were like giving me private seminars. I sat down with a with Senate parliamentarian Floyd Riddick, who'd been there again since uh, for decades. And he explained to me the Senate rules, and then he explained to me about filibusters and how they worked and how cloture worked. And of course, that enabled me to answer a lot of questions that would come in whenever the Senate was engaged in a filibuster or, or something like that. Uh, they were wonderful experiences, uh, just terrific moments to sit down, spend hours with someone telling about their lives telling about their careers, uh, explaining uh, how things developed. One of the more unusual interviews I did was with a man named Ted Kaufman, who spent 22 years as Joe Biden's chief of staff, and then spent two years as senator from Delaware, filling Biden's seat when Biden became vice president. I asked him at one point, I said, well, what was harder, being chief of staff or being senator? He said, oh, well, he said, being chief of staff was much harder. He said, I used to wake up at three o'clock in the morning worrying about things. I never did that when I was a senator because I had a chief of staff doing that for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are marvelous stories uh, from both of you, uh, Donald Ritchie and Terry Birdwhistle. Uh, not only their life in oral history, but uh, their 
marvelous read, and it really is quite uh, interesting, and uh, it is an, a, a history that we, as I think I've said, uh, we all need to know about, and we need to know about important uh, people and important women in our history, like uh, Bess Abel. So uh, to both of you, thanks and good luck. And I believe we'll uh, see you down the road at the Kentucky Book Festival this year. Uh, we hope that you're there. And uh, uh, we know that you'll have a lot of people who will who want to talk with you about uh, uh, your book and about uh, your life. So uh, thanks again for being on our Think Humanities podcast. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.